Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Marcus Speller. Welcome to the Barcelona Legacy Podcast. This is the sixth of a six-part series to coincide with the release of the Barcelona Legacy, a book that explores how the evolution of today's game begins at Barcelona 25 years ago with the pioneering ideas of Johan Cruyff and was taken on by the likes of Louis van Gaal, Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola. It's written by one of our panellists, Jonathan Wilson, who writes for The Guardian, Sports Illustrated and World Soccer, and it's out this month in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. In this, the last episode in the series, we bring our story full circle to a match that had a huge influence on the career paths and styles of play of both Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola. It's Barcelona 5, Real Madrid 0 in the 2010-11 La Liga season. And to help us discuss this, we have Ian Hawkey from the Sunday Times, who has written a biography of Alfredo Di Stefano and was based in Barcelona during this period. So, Jonathan, why have you chosen this match as our final stopping point? Uh, it's related to, to the previous podcast we did that Mourinho has been brought in having masterminded Inter's victory over, over Barca. He's been brought in as, by, by Real Madrid as the man who can stop Guardiola. He's a man who can stop Barca. And this is the first meeting and it goes disastrously wrong for him. So this is the, the, the peak of Guardiola at Barcelona. This demolition of his arch enemy in a beautiful style. And though he subsequently goes on to, to beat uh, Mourinho's Real Madrid in the Champions League semi-final, that was a much bloodier game. It was a much more attritional game. It was less of a spectacle. It was less a stylistic triumph. And what follows that is the slow destruction of Guardiola at Barcelona, brought about by the poison Mourinho injects in those semi-finals. And then, of course, you know, it goes on to Mourinho winning the league the following season with Real Madrid, Guardiola leaving Barcelona, and ultimately them both ending up in Manchester. Indeed, yeah. I mean, Ian, you were obviously, as we say, based in, in Barcelona. It felt like the it felt like the sort of the zenith, as, as Jonathan's saying, of what Guardiola achieved at Barcelona. It must have been an extraordinary thing to witness and be a part of. It, it was an amazing night. So it, it was very charged anyway, because it was uh, it was an unusual fixture. It was a Monday night. It was pouring with rain, so there was sort of yeah, an atmosphere around the place. And in some ways, it was... It, even the outcome was a surprise. Madrid had started the season, this is late November, Madrid had started the season slightly better in terms of points. They were slightly above Barca in the table. And then you had this wonderful display of passing football and the products of La Masia, the players who had come through the system, uh, starring individually. And David Villa, who was the new signing, the big new signing that summer, um, doing exactly what Guardiola wanted from his strikers, which which hadn't happened in the previous seasons under Guardiola. So all in all, it was perfect, except, I suppose, for the unpleasantness, if we were going to be a little bit <laughs> puritanical about it. It was it was nasty at the end, mainly from usual suspects of Real Madrid, but also there was some provocation from the Barca players. So, yeah, there was there was certainly a charge around it. Yeah, it was a, it, it certainly... Uh... I don't know if a prelude is the right word to use, but it, it certainly added a bit more spice as if the Clasico needed that from from what would happen you know, into the new year and in the Champions well, League and those four Clasicos. I think the point that Ian makes it was a Monday night is actually quite significant. Mm. That, you know, the whole world had been waiting 
to see what was going to happen when Mourinho met Guardiola. Yeah, because Mourinho did seem to be the person who could who could stop that style. You know, this style that had seemed sort of unstoppable when they beat Manchester United in two thousand nine, the Champions League final. So I thought, how can anybody live with that? Well, Inter showed how you could stop it, but could Mourinho then do it with with Real Madrid? And so it's a Monday night because of Catalan elections. But what that means is there's no other games. Everybody was watching it. The whole world was watching it. And you know, there's a story about Wayne Rooney watching at home, standing up and applauding in his living room because you know he was so sort of taken by by that style. Well, if it had been a Sunday, Wayne Rooney would have been playing for Manchester United. He wouldn't have been able to do that. So it, it had this sense of a game apart, um, almost like a you know a, a world title boxing fight, you know, a heavyweight mm-hmm. fight. That it was something that everybody had been waiting for, and everybody was watching. Yeah, and Ian, were people surprised the way Mourinho and Real Madrid approached the game? Because, you know, you said yourself that, that people in Barcelona were surprised it was 5-0, it was such a demolition. Bearing in mind, as we talked on the on, on a previous podcast, how Mourinho's Inter got the better of, of Barcelona, the way he approached this game, do you think he was, um, I don't want to say proving, well, perhaps proving a point that the way Real Madrid like to approach things, they don't want to resort to dirty tactics and admit to that the opposition is better. But Mourinho has done that so often in his career. Were you surprised at how he almost let the club influence his approach to the game or the history of the club? Well, in a sense that that, that so much of modern Barca Madrid is a yin and yang thing. So Mourinho was employed to be the anti-Guardiola, the anti-Barcelonista. Um, so in a sense that's what one club does the other club does something different. That is that is a very difficult dynamic to resist. Um, and of course, there was expectation that because of the way Mourinho's Inter had got past Barcelona only a few months earlier, there would be shades of that. Which was, you know, that meant it was a test for Guardiola too. So how have you how have you evolved? The more surprising thing in the detail of the game was the way Mourinho reacted at half time when they were down. He bought on Lasana Diara, who, I, I you know, is is a figurehead for, well, let's put it bluntly, spoiling football, mm. which which seemed a very odd thing to do and which demanded some explanation. Um, You're bringing on an ex Pompey player in a classico. That was not the first thought in Barcelona <laughs> minds, but um, <laughs> but it was certainly. Um, I mean, the funny I don't. There's a detail here. Uh, Lasana Diara ended up with the number ten shirt at Real Madrid, you know, through various <laughs> Byzantine means, which was which was always something that made you smile. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so um, Madrid resorted to um, this really dirty word, the trivote, which means three defensive midfielders, um, in a position where they were losing a game and. Clearly, this looked like damage limitation and calling damage lim- limitation at a very early stage. So um, that was surprising and disappointing. Mourinho's explanation for this was that um, you know he wanted to to release the, the strikers, um, but really he um, he was very his attitude afterwards was that uh, Barcelona are a complete side. We're not there yet, so. He built this up as we're rock bottom. Um, we're going to have to work on this, and and in the eventual narrative, I suppose he did because Madrid progressed from there in their relationship with Barcelona over the next two years under Mourinho. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even from the start of the game, yeah, you know, he, he was playing. He was trying to play as he played with Inter. He was trying to play a low block, uh, 
quite whether you can do that with Mesut Ozil you know, as one of your three central midfielders or not. I'm not sure. Um, but because Barcelona were different, they weren't the Barcelona they'd been in the semi final. There's no Ibrahimovic there. Mm. And that, I think, what you know is significant. The fact that Vera had come in, they were much more mobile. And so if you look at that first quarter of an hour, I mean, Barca scored twice in the first 14 minutes, but they also hit the post. Messi hit the post even before the first yeah, they goal. Were all over him. And they were, they were picking holes in the back four because, you know, because they, you had Vera and you had Pedro cutting in field, you had them creating the angles. That when you have Ibrahimovic, you're just a little bit more static, a little bit more predictable in your movement. And Sevilla's willingness to sacrifice himself to play on the wing, to 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 make those decoy runs inside, or or you know, to to make the runs to, to get little three balls from Messi dropping deep from a false nine position, all of that was was different to what had happened in the semi final. So Barça had Barça had evolved. Mourinho's t- tried to play the same tactics, and in quarter of an hour, they you know they're two 0 down. Um, Xavi got the first goal. And um, Pedro got the second, and that second goal. Gets the cross in to Barcelona. Uh, was it was it twenty one passes? In uh, twenty one passes in the in the sequence leading up to it. Yes, and as as some of the local press noted, I think all of those twenty one passes involving um, Spanish players. So in Barca's case, that would have mean meant academy players plus Villa. A small fact, but a fact noted. In the, yeah, in and then half time, you know, he 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 tries this with Trivotto bringing on Diara. So you've got uh, Javi Alonso, Kadira, uh, and and Diara, uh, and so they, they push a bit higher. Yeah, you know, the idea is to press in midfield, you know, to keep the, the the back four and those three very very close together to keep that compact, and and you try and press the ball when Barca Barca have it, but also to lure Barca on to use Ronaldo's pace in behind them. But by playing a higher line, they just open some, themselves up. So the Villa scores two goals very, very quickly, and both of them are just little slip balls through a, a defence that's, that's pushed high and can't get back. And part of the problem there is that Casillas, great goalkeeper though he is, although maybe Mourinho would would dispute that, <laughs> uh, was not able to play. You know, his natural game is not to play on the edge of his box as you, as you have to do behind a defence that pushes high. Um, and so suddenly, you know, they're four 0 down after fifty odd minutes. Uh, uh, which it, you know it becomes a bloodbath. Is what can we do? All we can do is spoil. And in the final goal, um, scored by a totally forgotten man. Jeffren, and set up by Bojan. Yes. So again, there was a nice little gloss on this that um, two two academy youngsters had come through to. To complete this, uh, complete this massacre. Do you think, Jonathan, with um, you know this, this, this legacy, of course, that we're we're talking about with Barcelona, um, the fact that you know Ian was saying that that it's the yin and yang when one side does one thing, the other, the other club does another. I mean, was this this is sort of ultimate Barcelona, wasn't it? That not only were they hammering Real Madrid, they were hammering them with such style, and they were forcing Real Madrid to try and um, play the destroyer role, and so it was almost like a double. Uh, I suppose a double whammy for them. Yeah, well, almost triple because they're doing it with kids. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, they're doing it with people they've produced them, if not kids, at least people they've produced themselves. So, you know, Real Madrid, a team who historically had always bought the best talent, and mm-hmm. you know, the whole culture of a club is based around bringing big stars, this idea of sort of aristocracy and, and the seniorio. Well, they, they had to abandon the seniorio code, this idea of gentlemanliness. And of course, Mourinho uses this game as a springboard to, to sort of. You get rid of all those traditions and do things his way. I mean, the ultimate um, result of this game is Jorge Valdano losing his job as sporting director. 
that Mourinho uses the the, the magnitude of a defeat. Um, you know, he, he he very cleverly spins it to to his ends to say actually this is a systemic problem at the club and we need to change everything. And he'd had these huge problems with Valdano, and you know, we we mentioned in the, in the last podcast that Mourinho's celebration after Inter's oh, yeah. win is. It's not that of a manager, it's that of a player. Yeah. That he, you know, he he runs from the bench as the final whistle goes with his finger raised in the air to the to the away fans. Well, yeah, like it's That's yeah. not what a manager does. You know, that's that's what a centre forward does. Mm. Um and uh, you know, this idea that, that of him as a as somebody who wanted to be a player and never made it as a player, and that I think always niggled away at him. And I think that lies behind the sense of insecurity that he felt when he was a coach at Barcelona, he was never quite accepted. He was always the outside, he's always just the translator. He was never the coach. He was never a former player. And Valdano had written the famous piece in Marca in 2007 after Mourinho's Chelsea had, had lost to Liverpool in the uh, Champions League semi-final. And, you know, and the famous line from that is, you, you put a shit hang from a stick in an art gallery, you know, it doesn't make it art. Um, but he goes on in that piece to make the very astute point, I think, that the reason that Benitez and Mourinho play like that is because they never made it as players they never they don't trust players because they couldn't imagine trusting themselves on the pitch so he, he says that they were they became the managers they as players would have needed to perform at a high level um you know they become very controlling everything becomes about the system there's no improvisation there's no faith in the players and and that i think really hurt Mourinho. so valdano yeah has to be got rid of both politically you know to, to allow Mourinho to put his own structure in place but also, I think Mourinho was aware that Valdano had, had seen through him. Yeah, personally, he wanted yeah, to get rid of him exactly, as, yeah. as well. And you contrast that with Barcelona, Ian. And they looked like they were having a lovely time. Now, obviously, Guardiola has, you know, parts of his character and approach have been criticised before. But those players, whereas at Real Madrid, you know, certain members of the hierarchy and, you know, as Jonathan just described there, it all seemed a bit, hang on, what is this madman doing at Barcelona? full faith in, in Pep Guardiola and his players did as well. And the aforementioned Ibrahimovic, who was very critical, he only lasted, was it a season there? One season, yeah. Yeah, so so this Barcelona side that beat Real Madrid, would you say, compared to the other ones, obviously Guardiola had great success and he wasn't there just for a season, was this the team? Was this peak Pep Guardiola's football at Barcelona, I suppose? Uh, yes, I, I think it probably was. I think institutionally... He was already having some difficulties upstairs. But, as you say, the, the club more or less supported him in the rejection of Ibrahimovic. Um, they had... they had, and, and in turn, they also supported him with, with the recruitment of David Villa, which, as I say, was the striker he wanted. His, his story is that Ibrahimovic was somehow forced on him in a complicated deal involving the removal of Samuel Etu to Inter. Um, uh, Etu also he hadn't really wanted, but came around to because Etu rolled up his sleeves as he does and and turned out to be very valuable for a season. Um, so in that sense, the, if you're talking about the agreement, the institutional agreement and support of Guardiola, yes, this, this, was, this was, he was yielding the benefits of that support, although things were changing a little bit upstairs because mm. there was an issue over the presidency. Um, and clearly on the field, mm. um, you know, this was this was a very homogenous, happy, um, 
thriving, confident team with with backup from within. And yeah, so so I guess if you're looking for a peak Guardiola at Barcelona, this wasn't a bad time because it was a Clasico. You mm-hmm. know, this was this was it, and they and they overtook Madrid and uh, were on their way to a second Champions League in three seasons. So mm-hmm. yes, and it was Mourinho's Inter that stopped them from doing back-to-back Champions League titles, of course. But what did what did Guardiola change after that defeat to Inter, Jonathan? Well, I think getting rid of Ibrahimovic was was hugely important, <clears throat> I mean, partly in terms of the harmony of a dressing room. Ibrahimovic's autobiography, if that's the right word, and, and I'm not sure it's not, mm. a sort of imaginative biography written in the first person, makes clear that right from the start, Ibrahimovic and Guardiola did not get on, that, Ibrahimovic would, for instance, turn up in his you know, Ferrari or, or a Porsche and, and Guardiola would say, no, you've got to, got to come in the club car. You know, The whole culture of the club is we don't get above ourselves. And Ibrahimovic sort of took this as Guardiola sort of seeing in Ibrahimovic the, the sort of flashiness of somebody who, who'd come from this very poor background in in, in Sweden, you know, who'd come from Rosengård uh, and in, in Malmo. Uh, and and sort of the, the the sort of the the ostentatious display of somebody who's come from nowhere and suddenly has wealth, but of course Guardiola would come from nowhere. From you know he's from a very ordinary working class background before he got to Barcelona, and you know, the demand that people drive a club car is entirely reasonable. And you know, just goes on to sort of talk about the other Barcelona players as just being these little schoolboys, kind of you know you're standing there nodding, doing what they're told, and that wasn't his wasn't his style at all. Um, and you know as we, as we mentioned in the uh, in the last podcast, that sort of reached a peak around around the time of those Inter games um, that he got injured in, in in the first one. So, so getting rid of him was necessary for for for, for harmony. But it was also, I think, tactically, he'd never fitted in. He never did the work he was supposed to do. He never, I mean, maybe he wasn't even capable of doing it. Being you know as big as he is, can you make those those darting little runs? Can you be that mobile? Maybe he couldn't, but certainly um, temperamentally, he couldn't do it. Mm. And he, he clearly became very frustrated by Messi's preeminence in the squad and having to play second fiddle to Messi. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week, you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcast and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Five nil. That was that was the game and that made everyone think, right, what is Mourinho going to do now and how are they going to approach the games? And of course, we were then treated to four Classicos in 18 days later on in the season. <laughs> and that's where it became a bit more physical from, from Real Madrid. Um, Barcelona didn't have such uh, a, a, a huge margin of, of, of victory, but more often than not, they did come out the victors in, in those games and they did get the better of Mourinho overall. And of course, um, in the semi-final of the, of the Champions League, they won 3-1 on aggregate. And the, the first leg in at the Bernabeu 
two great goals from from Lionel Messi and 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 Guardiola described going through um, in the second leg as as I think it was the best night of his life or or something like that and Guardiola that season and in those classicos Ian certainly got the better of Real of Real Madrid and Mourinho. Yes, he did. I mean, things had had moved on by the time of, there were there were three meetings because there was a Copa del Rey final as well mm-hmm. um, in this short space of time. So I mean, you know, this is wonderful for broadcasters. You, know, you have this <laughs> this the seething rivalry going on, and 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 you know, you have this this three way these these three meetings in three different venues and and two different competitions. Um, but things have moved on, um, certainly at Real Madrid, because Mourinho, having used, in many ways, the 5-0 defeat as a platform for saying it's got it's my way or the highway, look what the highway looked like, um, had gained some political power in the sense that Valdano had gone. Um, he'd, he'd got the centre-forward, not the centre-forward, but a centre-forward in the January transfer window, um, Emmanuel Adebayor, because he, he wanted a target man. He'd been going on about Hugo Almeida um, the previous summer. Um, so he got his target man. And it, it, he, he'd got a bit more of a grip on things. And he and slightly mysteriously, he after a lot of doubt from Florentino Perez, the, the president, he now appeared to have Perez on side, which, which is obviously very empowering. Um, so things were looking up in a sense um, when these collisions came around. Uh, they didn't look up for very long because Lionel Messi was superb in the away leg, which was the first leg, and Barca finished that 2-0. Meanwhile, there was there was a lot of aggro. Um, going back to the 5-0 briefly, that had finished with a red card for Sergio Ramos. Yeah. What's new, you might ask? <laughs> but this one was particularly interesting in the context of 2010 because... He was sent off for um, slapping uh, Carlos Puyol, who had been his partner mm. in Spain's World Cup squad. And on the way to slapping Carlos Puyol, he'd also shoved his face, shoved his hand in Xavi's face. Mm. So, you know, these were two quite important uh, in national team colleagues. Um, and it, and Piquet, Gerard Piquet, um, had sort of advanced his role as provocateur, which is one he still... <laughs> He still occupies by putting up the the open hand, mm. uh, signalling five goals in the five nil victory, which was not taken very well, and in fact, possibly informed what what follows. Mm. Although Sergio Ramos's fuse doesn't need much lighting, but all this uh, was was still there, and in some ways, the two managers manipulated it. Mm. Um, I think um, Jose Mourinho appreciated this this greater display of aggression from some Madrid players and he certainly discouraged um, the friendships that had built up in the national team he wanted he wanted the competition to be abrasive mm-hmm. and that I think informed what what followed which was a breakdown in his relationship with Ica Casillas who was of course captain of the Spanish national team extremely close to Barcelona's Xavi mm-hmm. um, and and these this series of classicos, Put a lot of pressure on that relationship, and 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 certainly had an effect within the Spanish national squad. So so all that's going on at the same time. Yeah. Um, and um, Barca are clearly the better side in the Champions League semi-finals, which in which Mourinho again uh, adopts some tactics which you might criticise a bit too much spoiling, a bit too much containment um, mm. when. Well, we should probably say what happened in those four games. So yeah. the, the league game, 
finishes 1-1, Raul Albiol is sent off, I mean, clearly correctly, and yet Mourinho uses that to go, well, it'd be lovely to see what happened if we could actually play with 11 against Barcelona. But that draw, you know, although it's obviously a much better result than, than the 5-0, it pretty much confirms Barcelona going to win the title. So it's a draw that suits Barcelona absolutely. Copa del Rey final finishes 1-0 to Real Madrid. Cristiano Ronaldo scores the winner in extra time, which I guess at least shows that Barca are beatable. But it had been a tight game. It had been chances at both ends. Pedro had a goal ruled out for offside. That was It was offside, but fractional. Uh, something Guardiola acknowledged in the press conference afterwards. He said, you know, I can't remember the exact line, but something about uh, a well-placed linesman gave a two-centimetre decision. So he's not disputing it. He's just saying it was close. But of course, Mourinho being the... The master of this kind of thing. Yeah, he's thinking that's my role. Before yeah. the before the first leg of a of a, of a Champions League, um, says, "Oh, you, now we have a new category of manager, a category of manager who complains when referees get decisions right." <laughs> um, and he, you know, he he stirs the pot as expertly as he does. And for the first time, Guardiola reacts, and he, you know, he comes in you know, an hour later, whatever, for for his press conference, and gives this two minute twenty three second rant. Uh, in which I presume were you there, Ian? Yes, I was. Yes, and, and it was it was extraordinary. And he was, you know, he was quite heated, and it was clearly pre-prepared. And um, he, you know, there was there was a lot of rhetoric to it. He 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 appeared to be praising Mourinho because he says you are the. I'm not sure if we can say this on a puta madre of of press conferences. This is your domain. You know, mm-hmm. your champion here. I can't compete. And then, of course, proceeds to try and compete with a with a very studied analysis of of Mourinho's strength at press conferences or whatever it is but within that he also reminds everybody who's listening that they have this long shared past he refers back to when Mourinho was a Barcelona figure an assistant coach and as as Jonathan knows that they actually had a, a good relationship they had a stimulating relationship Guardiola more than a lot of players in that dressing room back in the Bobby Robson era enjoyed Mourinho, really appreciated his fine mind, his analysis, and Mourinho enjoyed getting feedback from one of the more thoughtful, certainly one of the more analytical players in the dressing room. And I know, I know we said this before, but I think it's worth reiterating. If you look at the at the, the footage immediately after the Barca won the Cup Winners' Cup final, so the final whistle goes, the coaching staff run on the pitch, as is normal, and Mourinho makes straight for Guardiola, and it's not just a you know, run up to him, hug him, move on to the next person. They point at each other and they clearly say something to each other. And that sort of seeking him out, I think, suggests a level of affection and mutual respect mm. that perhaps is greater than certainly Guardiola now acknowledges. So I, I think they were, I mean, close. I don't know. But they, they had a, a stronger relationship than many players and coaches would have. Um, so, so, yeah, they had been, mm. been very close. And, I, and, and actually, the, you know, the Barca players are very... Um, they sort of they they react to, to this Guardiola rant with a level of relief and and you know it's like the tension's been broken. Thank goodness he's finally come out and and started you know started batting for us. Uh, but then the game is a horrible horrible game, but it's full of spoiling. Barca don't help. There's a lot of play acting. Uh, every time there's a foul or something approaching a foul, everybody surrounds the referee. Real have set up with with Pepe as the most advanced of three midfielders with Xabi Alonso and Lissana Diara. Um And this is at home. This is at the Bernabeu yeah. in a Champions League semi-final. And then, of course, surprise, surprise, Pepe is sent off. Um, and, you know, Real Madrid sort of protest about this decision. But, you know, it's, it's a knee-high challenge on Dani Alves, which even if it doesn't make contact, 
is a knee-high challenge with the studs raised. So may, maybe if it had been a yellow card, it wouldn't have been a travesty, but you can't complain it being a red. And Barcelona then take advantage of this. Messi scores the first one across yeah, the right, yeah. And the second goal is an absolutely brilliant no. goal, but sort of become forgotten. that this, I mean, this is the genius of Mourinho's propaganda. By banging on and on and on about the red card, we forget what a, what a sensational goal that was. I mean, I'd say easily in Messi's top 10 goals of all time, probably in his top five, at a key moment of a Champions League semi-final against Real Madrid. Mm. That should be a goal that's replayed over and over again, and it's disappeared. Mm. Yeah, and, and particularly striking that night because things had become so ill-tempered, unpleasant, which had you know also disturbed the rhythm of the game. Here was this footballer rising above it with a moment of wonderful skill and coolness. Um and and you know he was he was almost alone for that because as you say there wasn't the, the villains that night were not only the players in white there was there was a lot of simulation from Barcelona there was a lot of and that's an interesting point something I want to ask you about is that it was at this time well certainly for me when really the narrative was Real Madrid were the bad guys and Barcelona were the good guys. And this is something we, we've mentioned in previous podcasts about almost bringing in a morality into football, which is very Cruyffian and, and, and very Guardiola at the moment. And Guardiola playing the beautiful football, Mourinho trying to spoil it. Guardiola and Barcelona were seen as the good guys. And of course, in football, we know that certainly behind the scenes that may, not, may or not be true. But that's, for me, what it looked like. Uh, yes, and, and as you say, this is, this is an institutional strength of Barcelona. They... they they market themselves very well um, as the club where democracy works. Um, and more and more in this century, certainly with the alignment with a sort of Catalan feeling, so, well, the importance of, of locale, I think would be the mild way of putting it, but also allied very much to Catalonia's difficult relationship with Madrid um, and and being, you know, the, the underdog in that that relationship um and equally uh, the style of football the promotion of pass and move um and therefore by implication the rejection of an over physical game and this particular season brought that into to very obvious relief mm-hmm. um yeah so yeah so that yes as, as you say that I, I think that a lot of the rest of the world were were convincingly sold on this idea that 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 um there are some angels here and and Jose Mourinho's on the other side. <laughs> yes, but I mean his whole role is as the fallen angel. He was the one who was he yeah. was in heaven and is expelled from heaven like you know like uh, Milton's Satan and that's the figure he resembles with you know his his charm, his ability uh, in press conferences. Um, not that Milton Satan gave press conferences, <laughs> but, but I'm sure if, if if he had, they would have been excellent press conferences. Yeah, I've, no, I've no doubt. The, the, and but and, and Mourinho lived, tries to live up to this. He plays the rebel, and you know he he talked um, about you know how can we how can we beat the establishment? How can we how can we possibly take on this team who have referees and UEFA mm. in in their pockets? And you know the famously after the two 0 after the, after this first leg, he gives his give his whole series of sentences. You know, Porque why. Why did this happen? What? Yeah. Why was there this red card in this game? Why was there this red card in that game? Why was there this red card then? And you look back, and you know a lot of teams do have players sent off against Barcelona, and of course the reason is that Barcelona hold the ball really well, and so players get frustrated and end up kicking them. But the following... and also because they're smart at playing referees. Sure. And of all the, yeah, you look back at all the red cards he mentions, 
and you look at the incident and you sort of think, well, yes, fair enough. And the one that still strikes me as being weird is when they beat Arsenal uh, and Robin Van Persie was sent off for, he'd already been booked for a foul on, I think, on Danny Alves. And he gets sent off for a fraction after he's whistled for offside for putting the ball in the back of the net. I'm not even sure he had time to react to that. And it certainly wasn't dissentful. It wasn't wasting time. And Arsenal at the time were 1-1, having won the first like 2-1-2, 3-2 up on aggregate. And it, it 10 minutes in the second half, something like that, it kills them. And that's the one decision you can go, what, what was going on there? That's, it's not a decision you commonly see. That feels a bit weird. But, you know, referees make mistakes. And there's a very good reason why, as I say, why players are often sent off against Barcelona. Well, I'm sure while you were saying there about referees in Barcelona, if Didier Drogba is listening, he's nodding his head right now. No <laughs> doubt. But, uh, but Ian, as we sort of finish up um, with, on, on this one, you know, Mourinho, uh, as Jonathan was saying, and, and, and yourself, was brought in to, to, to beat this uh, established Barca, well-established Barcelona side. Following season, he did. Yes, yes. They they won the league, which was uh, which was obviously a... Huge triumph for Mourinho, um, given Barcelona's status. Um, he also did something else which he'd been brought in for, which was to which was to stop getting knocked out at the last 16 stage of the Champions League, which had been become a a pandemic for, and people for Madrid. Can, you can forget yes. that. With people recent, forget that. Yes. Seven, Jose seven Mourinho doesn't. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah. it was. Yeah. Um, so there's no there's no question that he he, he achieved quite a lot of what his um, what he was employed for. Um, and I think Jonathan probably has an idea on this. Um, Guardiola then left Barcelona, um, admitting exhaustion. And uh, this particular duel had been the most exhausting yeah. aspect of his job, no question about it. Well, those, those talking about those four derbies in 18 days, you know, this, this is a quote from Guardiola these aren't games I'll remember fondly, which, bearing in mind, they won in the league and got him to a Champions League final. These aren't games I will remember fondly, regardless of the result, because they're accompanied by too many incidents that are incomprehensible to me. I think, ultimately, Mourinho won the war. Yeah. Those were victories from which Guardiola never recovered at Barcelona. And then you know, he, he goes off, has his year sabbatical, comes back to a much more friendly environment at Bayern. Um, and now you're on to City where... where the, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure the last thing Guardiola wanted to see was Mourinho coming in at United. But so far, he... Uh, seems to be dominating that indeed yeah and of course that uh, that that period you know what is it sort of seven or eight years later as you say Manchester City and, and, and a big gap considering some of the other matches and incidents we've talked about in the previous podcast it was just months apart why do you think now it, it was eight years from from this match to to when we're talking about them um, well, I, I, I think and this is I mean this is something Mourinho points out all the time <laughs> um, winning the league in Germany so what frankly with Bayern you know, most people, most coaches will win the league with Bayern. They have an enormous financial advantage over everybody else. Um, so Guardiola would point out he won the league with record points totals by playing extraordinary football, and that is totally fair. But he was, he was brought into Bayern. He wasn't brought into Bayern to win the league. They, they could do that with anybody. He was brought into win the Champions League, and they lost in three semi-finals. So you can't call that failure because of semi-final, and yet he didn't do what he was meant to do. So there's a sense of almost treading water there. And then he gets to City, which is sort of Barcelona redux. You know, you've got Chiqui Bigayustan there, you've got Fernando Saliano. The, the, the hierarchy is the same people as he had at, at Barcelona. The club has been built in his image. Um, he obviously has great uh, authority over things like transfers. And I think 
you know, while City have spent an enormous amount of money, they've spent it incredibly well. You know, they don't have sort of a, a thirty million pound embarrassment sitting in the attic like United do. Um, <laughs> they they have you know a, a really really strong coherent squad, and yeah, you know, City is is, is almost you know, Guardiola FC. That it's a, it's a club designed for him and by him, which is something that perhaps Mourinho won't have and that's the legacy isn't it of, of, of Barcelona going through to Guardiola that, that yes I understand who am I to question Guardiola's thoughts of course but um, what he says about Mourinho winning the war in those four classicos in, in that uh, in that context yes but surely the history books you would think looking back at the two managers or more Guardiola would look at him and his style more favourably probably but two Champions Leagues each yeah, you know, and, and as Mourinho said, if you win the Champions League with Porto, that that kind of does mean more than winning it with Barcelona. But in I terms think. of influence on the in game? In terms of influence over the game, and, and in terms of what I think will happen in the next 10 to 15 years, I'm pretty sure Guardiola will come out on top. But you will have people take Mourinho's cause, and, and, and I understand why. And I think that's what's so fascinating about the rivalry. But because, you know, the great paradox of Mourinho is that his whole method seems to work better with underdog clubs. You know, he, he needs to be fighting against the system. And it's really hard to portray yourself as an underdog if you're Real Madrid or if you're Manchester United. But, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 the contrast between Guardiola's relationship to his directors and the transfer policy to what we've seen with Mourinho this summer, only able to get in one player. You have this you know, bizarre dispute kind of played out through various briefings to which centre-back they're even targeting. Um, you know that that relationship at United is clearly much much harder for Mourinho, um, and there seems to be a you know a divergence of vision. I think the a lot of the American directors at, at United don't want to be signing twenty eight, twenty nine year old proven players. They want to be signing younger players with a sell on value. They wanted to be more business driven. Well, they got the wrong manager to do that. Mourinho's not going to be able to do that. That's that's not his way. Whereas Guardiola has, seems to have a, a perfectly serene. Uh, relationship with his directors much more serene than he ever had at Barcelona, mm. and and the, the the whole book, you know, the Barcelona legacy starts and and features heavily, of course, Johan Cruyff. Uh, Ian, do you think Guardiola? I don't. Maybe, maybe not now. Perhaps um, in the future, it will be seen as on the, at Barcelona as the same level uh, that Johan Cruyff is. Yes, I, I do because I think his era will be remembered with particular fondness. The the, the era of yeah. Guardiola's coaching I think what it might require is for Guardiola to sometime in the future more explicitly commit himself to to the club as a place of belonging Mm. Um, now clearly he he can't do that now because he belongs to Manchester City and he's you know needs to be very corporate about that but I I think that's what it would take because the the club wants to be loved by by a great like him as Cruyff always did Cruyff spent the rest of his life there. He was always engaged with the club, sometimes to the annoyance of their actual employees. So I think I think that would have to happen in the future for him to be on the, the same pedestal. Mm-hmm. But it is possible, Jonathan. Yeah, I think it's very difficult and because whoever comes first is always going to be more important. And you, you can make a comparison with Liverpool, say, where Bill Shankly's still the one who's revered, but Bob Paisley's more successful. Bob Paisley won much more. Mm. You know, Bill Shankly never won a European Cup. But Shankly's the one who created Liverpool as we know it. And you know, Barcelona, Cruyff will always be the one who created Barcelona as we know them. For all Guardiola's successes, he, he's the one who came after. So, yeah, I mean, maybe if he goes back and, and 
I don't know, in, in 10 years becomes manager again or takes on some kind of sporting director role or even just becomes this sort of Emnon Squeeze writing his columns in, in, in Spanish newspapers that being sort of the moral conscience of a club, maybe he can, he, you know, he can achieve parity. But to displace the man who came first, you know, whose ideas he took on, yeah, that's the whole point of the book is he took on those ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the progenitor is always going to be more important than the, the disciple. Absolutely. Well, there we are, ladies and gentlemen. That uh, was the last of our six-part podcast series to coincide with the release of The Barcelona Legacy, a book that explores how the evolution of today's game begins at Barcelona 25 years ago with the pioneering ideas of Johan Cruyff was taken on by the likes of Louis van Gaal, Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola. Uh, Ian Hawkey, thank you very much. Uh, pleasure. And Jonathan, pleasure, of course. And thank you very much, good listeners, for listening to this. Go and buy the book. <laughs>